Chapter 11 of the Epistle of St. Paul to the Romans by Handley Mole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Abraham, 2, Romans 4, 13-25. Again we approach the name of Abraham, friend of God, father of the faithful. We have seen him justified by faith, personally accepted because turning altogether to the sovereign promiser. We see him now in some of the glorious issues of that acceptance, heir of the world, father of many nations. And here too all is of grace, all comes through faith, not works, not merit, not ancestral and ritual privilege, secured to Abraham the mighty promise. It was his because he, pleading absolutely nothing of personal worthiness, and supported by no guarantees of ordinance, believed God. We see him as he steps out from his tent under that glorious canopy, that Syrian night of stars. We look up with him to the mighty depths and receive their impression upon our eyes. Behold the innumerable points and clouds of light. Who can count the half-visible rays which make white the heavens, gleaming behind, beyond the thousands of more numerable luminaries? The lonely old man, who stands gazing there, perhaps side by side with his divine friend, manifested in human form, is told to try to count, and then he hears the promise, So shall thy seed be. It was then and there that he received justification by faith. It was then and there also that by faith, as a man uncovenanted, unworthy, but called upon to take what God gave, he received the promise that he should be heir of the world. It was an unequalled paradox, unless indeed we place beside it the scene when, eighteen centuries later in the same land, a descendant of Abraham's, a Syrian craftsman, speaking as a religious leader to his followers, told them, Matthew thirteen thirty-seven to 38 that the field was the world, and he the master of the field. Heir of the world? Did this mean of the universe itself? Perhaps it did, for Christ was to be the claimant of the promise in due time, and under his feet all things, literally all, are set already in right, and shall be hereafter set in fact. But the more limited, and probably in this place the fitter, reference is vast enough, a reference to the world of earth and of man upon it. In his seed that childless senior was to be king of men, monarch of the continents and oceans, to him, in his seed, the utmost parts of the earth were given for his possession, not his little clan only, encamped on the dark fields around him, nor even the direct descendants only of his body, however numerous, but all nations, all kindreds of the earth, were to call him blessed, and to be blessed in him, as their patriarchal chief, their head in covenant with God. We see not yet all things, fulfilled of this astonishing grant and guarantee, we shall not do so till vast promised developments of the ways of God have come to sight, but we do see already steps taken towards that issue, steps long, majestic, never to be retraced. We see at this hour, literally, in every region of the human world, the messengers, an always more numerous army, of the name of the son of David, the son of Abraham. They are working everywhere, and everywhere, notwithstanding innumerable difficulties, they are winning the world for the great heir of the promise. Through paths they know not, these missionaries have gone out, paths hewn by the historical providence of God, 
and by his eternal life in the church and in the soul. When the world has seemed shut by war, by policy, by habit, by geography, it has opened that they may enter, till we see Japan throwing back its castle doors, and inner Africa not only discovered, but become a household word for the sake of its missions, of its martyrdoms, of the resolve of its native chiefs to abolish slavery, even in its domestic form. No secular conscious program has had to do with this. Causes entirely beyond the reach of human combination have been, as a fact, combined. The world has been opened to the Abrahamic message, just as the church has been inspired anew to enter in, and has been awakened to a deeper understanding of her glorious mission. For here too is the finger of God, not only in the history of the world, but in the life of the church and of the Christian. For a long century now, in the most living centres of Christendom, there has been waking and rising a mighty revived consciousness of the glory of the gospel of the cross and of the spirit, of the grace of Christ and also of his claim. And at this hour, after many a gloomy forecast of unbelieving and apprehensive thought, there are more men and women ready to go to the ends of the earth with the message of the son of Abraham than in all time before. Contrast these issues, even these, leaving out of sight the mighty future, with the starry night when the wandering friend of God was asked to believe the incredible and was justified by faith, and was invested through faith with the world's crown. Is not God indeed in the fulfillment? Was he not indeed in the promise? We are ourselves a part of the fulfillment. We, one of the many nations of whom the great solitary was then made the father let us bear our witness and set to our seal. In doing so, we attest and illustrate the work, the ever-blessed work of faith. That man's reliance at that great midnight hour merited nothing but received everything. He took, in the first place, acceptance with God, and then with it, as it were, folded and embedded in it, he took riches inexhaustible of privilege and blessing, above all the blessing of being made a blessing. So now, in view of that hour of promise, and of these ages of fulfilment, we see our own path of peace in its divine simplicity. We read, as if written on the heavens in stars, the words, Justified by faith. And we understand already what the epistle will soon amply unfold to us. How for us, as for Abraham, blessings untold of other orders lie treasured in the grant of our acceptance. Not for him only, but for us also, believing. Let us turn to the text, verse 13 to verse 15. For not through law came the promise to Abraham or to his seed of his being the world's heir, but through faith's righteousness, through the acceptance received by uncovenanted, unprivileged faith. For if those who belong to law inherit Abraham's promise, faith is ipso facto void, and the promise is ipso facto annulled. For wrath is what the law works out, it is only where law is not that transgression is not either. As much to say that to suspend eternal blessing, the blessing which in its nature can deal only with ideal conditions upon man's obedience to law, is to bar fatally the hope of a fulfilment. Why? Not because the law is not holy, not because disobedience is not guilty, as if man were ever for a moment mechanically compelled to disobey, but because, as a fact, man is a fallen being, however he became so, and whatever is his guilt as such, he is fallen and has no true self-restoring power. 
If, then, he is to be blessed, the work must begin in spite of himself. It must come from without. It must come unearned. It must be of grace through faith. Verse 16 to verse 17. Therefore it is on, literally out of, faith, in order to be grace-wise, to make secure the promise to all the seed, not only to that which belongs to the law, but to that which belongs to the faith of Abraham, to the seed whose claim is no less and no more than Abraham's faith, who is the father of all us, as it stands written, Genesis 17.5, Father of many nations, have I appointed thee, in the sight of God, as if to say that it matters little what Abraham is for us all in the sight of man, in the sight and estimate of the Pharisee, the eternal justifier and promiser dealt with Abraham, and in him with the world before the birth of that law which the Pharisee has perverted into his rampart of privilege and isolation. He took care that the mighty transaction should take place not actually only, but significantly in the open field and beneath the boundless cope of stars. It was to affect not one tribe, but all the nations. It was to secure blessings which were not to be demanded by the privileged, but taken by the needy. And so the great representative believer was called to believe before law, before legal sacrament, and under every personal circumstance of humiliation and discouragement. Verse 18 to verse 22. Who, past hope on hope, believed, stepping from the dead hope of nature to the bare hope of the promise, so that he became father of many nations, according to what stands spoken, so shall thy seed be. And because he failed not in his faith, he did not notice his own body already turned to death, near a century old as he now was, and the death state of the womb of Sarah. No, on the promise of God he did not waver by his unbelief, but received strength by his faith, giving glory to God, the glory of dealing with him as being what he is, almighty and all true, and fully persuaded that what he has promised he is able actually to do. Wherefore, actually, it was reckoned to him as righteousness, not because such a giving to God the glory, which is only his eternal due, was morally meritorious in the least degree. If it was so, Abraham would have whereof to glory. The wherefore is concerned with the whole record, the whole transaction. Here was a man who took the right way to receive sovereign blessing. He interposed nothing between the promiser and himself. He treated the promiser as what he is, all-sufficient and all-faithful. He opened his empty hand in that persuasion, and so, because the hand was empty, the blessing was laid upon its palm. Verse 23 to verse 25. Now it was not written only on his account that it was reckoned to him, but also on account of us, to whom it is sure to be reckoned. In the fixed intention of the divine justifier, as each successive applicant comes to receive believing as we do on the raiser-up of Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up on account of our transgressions, and was raised up on account of our justification. Here the great argument moves to a pause, to the cadence of a glorious rest. More and more, as we have pursued it, it has disengaged itself from the obstructions of the opponent, and advanced with a larger motion into a positive and rejoicing assertion of the joys and wealth of the believing. We have left far behind the pertinacious cavils which ask now whether there is any hope for man outside legalism, now whether within legalism there can be any danger even for deliberate unholiness, 
and again whether the gospel of gratuitous acceptance does not cancel the law of duty. We have left the Pharisee for Abraham, and have stood beside him to look and listen. He, in the simplicity of a soul which has seen itself and seen the Lord, and so has not one word, one thought about personal privilege, claim or even fitness, receives a perfect acceptance in the hand of faith, and finds that the acceptance carries with it a promise of unimaginable power and blessing. And now from Abraham, the apostle turns to us, us all, us also. His thoughts are no longer upon adversaries and objections, but on the company of the faithful, on those who are one with Abraham and with each other, in their happy willingness to come without a dream of merit and take from God his mighty peace in the name of Christ. He finds himself not in synagogue or in school disputing, but in the believing assembly, teaching, unfolding in peace the wealth of grace. He speaks to congratulate, to adore. Let us join him there in spirit and sit down with Aquila and Priscilla and Nerus and Nymphus and Persis, and in our turn remember that it was written for us also, quite surely and with a fullness of blessing which we can never find out in its perfection. To us also faith is sure to be reckoned. Meli logisiste, as righteousness, believing as we do, thus pistevosin, on the raiser up of Jesus our Lord, ours also from the dead. To us as to them, the Father presents himself as the raiser up of the Son. He is known by us in that act. It gives us his own warrant for a boundless trust in his character, his purposes, his unreserved intention to accept the sinner who comes to his feet in the name of his crucified and risen Son. He bids us not forget that he is the judge who cannot for a moment connive. But he bids us believe, he bids us see that he, being the judge and also the lawgiver, has dealt with his own law in a way that satisfies it, that satisfies himself. He bids us thus understand that he now is sure to justify, to accept, to find not guilty, to find righteous, satisfactory, the sinner who believes. He comes to us, he, this eternal Father of our Lord, to assure us in the resurrection that he has sought and has found a ransom that he has not been prevailed upon to have mercy, a mercy behind which there may therefore lurk a gloomy reserve, but has himself set forth the beloved propitiation and then accepted him, not it but him, with the acceptance of not his word only but his deed. He is the God of peace. How do we know it? We thought he was the God of the tribunal and the doom, yes, but he has brought the great shepherd from the dead in the blood of the everlasting covenant. Hebrews 13.20 Then, O eternal Father of our Lord, we will believe thee, we will believe in thee, we will, we do, in the very letters of the words thou didst bid thy messenger write down here, believe upon thee, epiton ehiranta, as in a deep repose, truly in this glorious respect, thou art consuming fire, there is nothing in thee to dread who was delivered up because of our transgressions. So dealt the Father with the Son who gave himself. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He spared not his own Son, because of our transgressions, to meet the fact that we had gone astray. What was that fact thus to be met? Was our self-will, our pride, our falsehood, our impurity, our indifference to God, our resistance to God, to be thus met? Was it to be met at all? 
and not rather left utterly alone to its own horrible issues? Was it eternally necessary that if met, it must be met thus, by nothing less than the delivering up of Jesus our Lord? It was even so. Assuredly, if a milder expedient would have met our guilt, the Father would not have delivered up the Son. The cross was nothing, if not an absolute sine qua non. There is that in sin and in God which made it eternally necessary that if man was to be justified, the Son of God must not only live but die, and not only die but die thus, delivered up, given over, to be done to death, as those who do great sin are done. Deep in the heart of the divine doctrine of atonement lies this element of it, the because of our transgressions, the exigency of Golgotha due to our sins. The remission, the acquittal, the acceptance was not a matter for the verbal fiat of divine autocracy. It was a matter not between God and creation, which to him is a little thing, but between God and his law, that is to say, himself, as he is eternal judge. And this, to the eternal, is not a little thing. So the solution called for no little thing but the atoning death, for the laying by the Father on the Son of the iniquities of us all, that we might open our arms and receive from the Father the merits of the Son, and was raised up because of our justification, because our acceptance had been won by his deliverance up. Such is the simplest explanation of the grammar and of the import. The Lord's resurrection appears as, so to speak, the mighty sequel, and also the demonstration, warrant, proclamation of his acceptance as the propitiation, and therefore of our acceptance in him. For indeed it was our justification when he paid our penalty. True, the acceptance does not accrue to the individual till he believes, and so receives. The gift is not put into the hand till it is open and empty. But the gift has been bought ready for the recipient long before he kneels to receive it. It was his in provision from the moment of the purchase. And the glorious purchaser came up from the depths where he had gone down to buy, holding aloft in his sacred hands the golden gift, ours because his for us. A little while before he wrote to Rome, St. Paul had written to Corinth, and the same truth was in his soul then, though it came out only passingly, while with infinite impressiveness. If Christ is not risen, idle is your faith, you are yet in your sins. 1 Corinthians 15.17 That is to say, so the context irrefragably shows, you are yet in the guilt of your sins, you are still unjustified. In your sins cannot possibly there refer to the moral condition of the converts, for, as a matter of fact, which no doctrine could negative, the Corinthians were changed men. In your sins refers therefore to guilt, to law, to acceptance. And it bids them look to the atonement as the objective sine qua non for that, and to the resurrection as the one possible and the only necessary warrant to faith that the atonement has secured its end. Who was delivered up? Who was raised up? When? About twenty-five years before Paul sat dictating this sentence in the house of Gaius, there were at that moment about three hundred known living people at least, 1 Corinthians 15.6, who had seen the risen one with open eyes and heard him with conscious ears. From one point of view all was eternal, spiritual, invisible. From another point of view our salvation was as concrete, as historical, as much a thing of place and date as the battle of Actium or the death of Socrates. And what was done remains done can length of years on God himself exact, and make that fiction which was once a fact.
End of chapter 11.